Welcome to the 11th episode of Room 106. I'm Richard Garlick from Planning Magazine. And I'm John Gagan, also from Planning Magazine. Every fortnight, we enter Room 106, the chamber into which all new planning information is deposited, and extract the key things you need to know. As our regular listeners will know, the podcast is called Room 106, after Room 101, the place in George Orwell's novel 1984 that contains a prisoner's deepest fears. We're suggesting that, for ourselves and some of our audience, the task of regularly keeping on top of the latest developments can be somewhat forbidding. Although not perhaps as forbidding as the rat's cage straps the head of Orwell's original occupant of Room 101. It's called Room 106 instead of Room 101, in reference to the Section 106 negotiations that take place when councils are trying to agree how much developers should pay for infrastructure. Negotiations that we understand can be vexatious in themselves. In a change to our normal approach, we are joined on this trip into Room 106 by two companions. The first is planning reporter Samantha Eckford. Hello, Sam. Hello, Richard. You've been in Room 106 a couple of times before, right? Yes, but never done a whole tour of duty. You'll be fine. Our second companion is senior reporter Chris Caulfield. Hello, Chris. Hello, John. So this is your first visit to Room 106, Chris. Feeling nervous? A bit of trepidation. Only natural, but it's never as bad as you think it will be. Right, so, coming up. The key news stories of the past fortnight or so, and why they might be important for you. More councils have abandoned or paused local plans in the past month. We explore why and what might make them resume work. We ask why two high-profile consultants have announced a switch to employee ownership. And we'll explore what could happen next after Planning Minister Stuart Andrew rejected several central London boroughs' bid to block new permitted development rights in their areas. I'll also be highlighting one of the quirkiest stories from the past two weeks. And finally, in the deep dive section, we'll examine the findings of our newly published Housing Land Supply Index, which sets out planning authorities' latest published housing land supply positions as of last month, plus links to the documents. By the end of the show, you should know enough to accept the next work drinks invitation without fear of exposure. So, time to bite the bullet. Ready for the ordeal? Fair enough. If we have to. OK, then. Well, here we are again in room 106, the repository in which all new planning information collects. It's just overflowing with new documents. Yes, the news just keeps coming in. You've got to just focus on one document at a time and pretend nothing else is happening. Don't look into any of the anti-rooms. There's a bit of space here where we could stop for a chat. Yes, it's the place where local plans are supposed to be kept. There tends to be plenty of elbow room here. Well, as luck would have it, our first topic is local plans. At the start of last month, we reported that ten councils had abandoned, paused or delayed work on their local plans in the previous six months. Since then, four more councils have added themselves to the list. We've written a number of stories about this in, in the past few weeks, but the first was on the 23rd of March, when we reported that a Hampshire council had withdrawn its local plan. Chris, I think you reported on this one. I certainly did. Which is the council concerned? It was Haven't Borough Council. Uh, they've been preparing uh, their draft local plans in 2016, but following meeting with its full council, announced that the plan was no more. OK. And uh, why have they decided to withdraw it? Well, they were criticised uh, by examining inspectors, uh, Jonathan Manning and Thomas Hatfield, 
who outlined their concerns to the council last November. And by concerns, I mean strong advice to withdraw the plan following its initial hearing in July. The inspectors were worried allocations for thousands of new homes would not be deliverable and whether legal consultation requirements had been met. So why have they decided to withdraw the local plan now? Well, according to a note published on its website, uh, the new plan, when they get about it, will uh, not only best reflect the post-pandemic world that we all live in, uh, but also the most current approaches to securing development and the latest environmental policies. Okay. And is it possible that they're banking on a change to the way that housing need is measured to sort of help them with this revised local plan? Well, it would certainly be in their their favour. During the plan's hearings, inspectors noted that the uh, housing supply had reduced from 4.7 years to 3.9. And Alex Rennie, the Conservative leader of Havant Borough Council, wrote to the housing secretary and the housing minister saying that the existing standard method for assessing housing need is simply not fit for purpose and that the standard method does not take into account geographical constraints of an area, infrastructure restrictions, environmental issues and achieving sustainable design. Really interesting. Okay, and John, I believe on the same day as we reported that, we also reported that a council had delayed its local plan submission after a landowner withdrew its site for a 4,000 home scheme. So which council was that concerning? Yes, that was Bassett Law District Council in Nottinghamshire. And why have they paused their plan? So the most recent draft, the one that was um, they're preparing to submit for examination, includes proposals for a new 4,000-home garden village on Greenfield land. But now the uh, garden village plans have been axed because one of the landowners of the site has pulled out. OK, and uh, what does that mean in terms of the extent of the delay? So the council had intended to submit the plan for examination this month, but it will now undertake a further consultation subject to approval by the uh, authorities' cabinets. And the consultation is expected to run for six weeks between April and June. So it will be delayed for at least several months. OK, so on one day, towards the end of March, haven't withdrew its local plan and Bassett Law delayed. And then the following day we reported that an Essex council had voted against adopting its local plan. So which uh, which council was that, John? That was Castle Point Council in Essex. And what happened at Castle Point? So at a full council meeting at the end of last month, council members voted not to approve a recommendation to adopt the plan, which releases 220 hectares of Greenbelt land for development. The inspector's final report on the document had only been submitted to the council on 3rd of March, so just a few weeks before, and that recommended the plan's adoption subject to certain modifications. We asked the council about it and they said that though the plan has not been adopted, it hasn't been withdrawn. So it's not entirely clear at this point what's happening next with the plan and we're waiting for an update on the council. We're also not entirely clear on what the reasons behind the vote were, but we do know that the level of Greenbelt release in the plan has been very contentious in Castle Points. And of course, this comes just weeks after nearby Basildon Council voted to withdraw its plan from examination because of concerns at the level of Greenbelt release. Okay, so Castle Point were the third council in um, two days where there was a withdrawal or, or a delay. Then on the 25th of March, we reported that another local plan had been paused after some budget issues. Sam, that was that was your story. Can you tell us about that? Yep, yeah, so that was Slough Borough Council. At a meeting of its planning committee last month, 
a planning policy officer, said that all of the £320,000 allocated for local plan work in the council's annual budget had been taken away after significant financial mismanagement had left the council with debts of more than £200 million. The officer said that by removing the entirety of the annual budget, that meant that work on the local plan had to be paused for a time. Okay, so all in all, it was a pretty bad three days for local plan making. That said, obviously, those kind of stories always make the news. We should note that there were a few local plans adopted in March, one in Northumberland, one in Brentwood, and also the Ipswich core strategy. Nonetheless, this is seems to be an ongoing trend. And what do we think is behind this uh, trend for delays and abandonment? So of the original 10 authorities we identified last month, nine were Greenbelt authorities and seven were found in the Greater Southeast. With the addition of these latest four, 11 of the 14 authorities, we're aware, have paused or delayed work on their local plan at Greenbelt authorities, and 10 of the 14 are found in the Greater Southeast. This suggests that pressures placed on authorities are most heightened in the areas in and around London's Greenbelt. Now, this may be because the punishment for not having an up-to-date local plan, the presumption in favour of sustainable development, doesn't apply to Greenbelt land, where the MPPF says that applications can only be approved in very special circumstances. Those authorities therefore have less to lose by delaying local plan work. Commentators also told planning that there's often a political element to this. If a revision to the government's standard methodology for calculating housing need was brought in over the next few months, as some Southern Conservative councillors seem to expect, the burden placed on authorities would be significantly reduced. This is essentially encouraging authorities to delay work on local plans while they wait for planning reform. Thanks for that, Sam. So a lot of councils banking on a change in the assessment of housing need to make local plan making easier for them. John, are councils who are hoping for other changes from the government to make local plan making easier likely to see their wishes fulfilled? Well, it appears that the government is still committed to simplifying local plan making, but of course it remains to be seen whether that is in fact, whether whatever proposals they come up with does prove to uh, make it easier for them. So our listeners will remember that in the planning white paper back in the summer of 2020, the government proposed a series of changes to local plan making with the aim of speeding it up. And of course, there's been lots of changes to the white paper proposals since then. But recently, ministers have reiterated several times their wish to see plan making streamlined. And most recently, in a response to a House of Lords report late last month, the housing department said the government agreed that simplifying the content of local plans and standardising the process for producing them is important to make plans easier to find, understand and engage with. And of course, we're awaiting further details on that. Okay, fair enough. So something to keep an eye on. Yeah. Fantastic. Thanks very much to all three of you for that. On to our second topic. The start of the financial year has seen two of the UK's biggest planning consultancies, DLP Planning and Quad, announce a switch to employee ownership, a model that is also used by other prominent consultants like Arup, Turley and Tibbalds. Sam, you covered the DLP planning story. What can you tell us about the firm and and what they're doing? Yeah, so according to our 2021 planning consultancy survey, DLP is the joint 18th largest planning consultancy firm in England in terms of number of chartered planners employed. As of the 1st of April, it became employee-owned, although the leadership team will remain in place for now with what they call a measured change in leadership plan for the future. The firm said that the decision to transfer ownership had been taken to ensure the independence and continuity of the company 
and that it would allow staff to shape the firm's growth. Okay, thanks very much, Sam. And then the second story that we covered, similar thing happening, another announcement of a shift to employee ownership was at Quad. Chris, you covered this one. What, what do we know about Quad? Yes, uh, they're one of the, uh, the biggest in the country as well, ranking 14th equal by number of chartered town planners uh, employed when it last submitted a response to planning's annual consultancy survey. And this week, uh, it announced, as you said, that it was moving to an employee ownership trust. Okay, and what are its reasons for making the move? To remain independent uh, and to bring through the next generation of directors. It's been more than a decade since John Rhodes, OBE, and around 20 colleagues left the multidisciplinary consultancy RPS to set up the firm. And then they see this now as the next logical step. Okay, fantastic. Now, we spent a bit of time puzzling over the governance and management of the organisation, which has changed as, as part of this. How does this now work? Uh, well, under the trust, uh, there will be a newly created board uh, that includes two of the former directors, that's, that's John Rhodes and Andy Hunt, and they'll be joined by Sophie Buckley and Lucy Dean, uh, who were directly elected by Quad employees, as well as an independent chair, Andy White. And this trust board will oversee an operational board, which will take care of the day-to-day running of the business. That will be led by a newly appointed managing director, Tom Dobson, uh, who spoke to us uh, at length about the new setup. Uh, and it also features Tim Rainbird as financial director, uh, plus Elva Phelan, Chris Wheaton, Richard Frudd, and Sean Bashforth. Uh, and then the two boards will replace the company's previous nine-person board uh, of executive directors. Okay, okay. So definitely a bit of movement there, although they're keen to say that clients won't initially notice any disruption to the way their business is handled. Correct, yeah. The clients uh, will see the same faces as before, work with the same teams as before. And this is more about the sort of the long-term strategic vision of taking the company forward down the track. Okay, okay. Thanks very much for that, Chris. John, you, you've been looking at one or two changes in the consultancy market recently. Both DLP and Quad are saying that they felt they needed to take steps to shore up their independence. Why might they feel that their independence could come under threat? Well, we, we don't know whether this was a factor in their thinking, but a huge story in the planning consultancy market recently is the um, purchase of Barton Wilmore, one of the biggest and most well-established planning consultancies in the UK by a rival uh, multidisciplinary firm, Stantec. And there's been a pattern in um, the past few years of North American firms like Stantec buying UK planning consultancies. In fact, Stantec had previously purchased Peter Brett Associates a couple of years ago. Okay, so we don't know whether explicitly the um, Barton Wilmore takeover was a um, factor, but am I right in thinking, Chris, that they were certainly conscious of recent takeovers in the um, in the sector? Because that is the case, isn't it, on your background conversations with them? Yeah, they were, they were mindful of that. They didn't explicitly say mention um, Stantec, but uh, they were highlighting that it's been a bit of a trend in the industry and they're looking at ways to ward that off. Another factor I understand from some of our previous coverage is that at the moment, any consultancy that wants to expand fast, their options of doing it organically are quite limited because in the current recruitment market, it's very hard to recruit a lot of senior people quickly. So acquisition almost becomes the only option. And there's a trend for consultancies to be able to offer sort of all things to all people rather than just a purely planning side of things. Yeah, I see. And you're saying that some consultancies, therefore, that there's a reason why some multidisciplinary firms that haven't got a very strong planning element 
which is not, of course, the case with Stantec, but why some multidisciplinary firms might be looking at planning consultancies. Fantastic. Okay, well, thank you all very much for that. So let's uh, move on to our our last big news story of the past three weeks, the news that the government has rejected several central London boroughs' bid to block permitted development rights. John, can you tell us what the boroughs had wanted to do? So there was seven councils, including Kensington and Chelsea, Camden, Lambeth, Southwark, Tower Hamlets, Wandsworth and Westminster – and they wanted to block a new and controversial permitted development right that allows a range of commercial and business uses to convert to residential without requiring a planning application. And this right is called Class MA. And the councils were concerned about what one of them called the widespread loss of vital commercial space and the creation of substandard housing, which doesn't meet the community's needs. OK. And how did the government respond to that? So council's Article 4 directions need to be signed off by the government. And in this case, the housing minister, Stuart Andrew, has refused to do that. And he said the proposed directions failed to take a sufficiently targeted approach. He said that taken altogether, the directions would disapply the permitted development right from most of London's central activity zone. And this is an area of central London that includes the City of London and the West End. And Andrew said that the directions should apply to the smallest geographic area possible. And having looked at the evidence, he was not persuaded that a case has been made for blanket coverage. Okay, so the initial bid to exempt these areas or parts of these areas from the right seems to have failed. What happens now? Well, it's not entirely clear what the council is going to do, but one option they have is to revise the directions so that they're more targeted to smaller areas and then resubmit them for government approval. A Westminster City Council spokesman said the council will continue to work with government to ensure we have the powers we need to protect and enhance commercial space in our city. Okay, thanks, John, and uh, to Chris and Sam for the roundup of the news. Of course, more details of all these stories can be found on planningresource.co.uk. But now we must traverse Room 106 again to find the section in which details of local authorities' housing land supply positions are kept. Personal experience suggests that's not going to be an easy place to find. Okay, so this is a particularly dark corner of Room 106, which John, Chris and Sam have spent quite a lot of time in over recent weeks, compiling our new Housing Land Supply Index, which we published at the end of last week. John, what is the Housing Land Supply Index? Well, the index aims to be a record of all English local planning authorities' most recent housing land supply position. And what sources have we used to establish their positions? We've looked firstly at Council's published housing land supply positions, and that's usually in an annual monitoring report or a dedicated web page. And we've adjusted these figures if they were published before the most recent housing delivery tests results were published and where the test results have adjusted their housing land supply buffer positions. We've also, in some cases, looked at appeal decisions, where they're more up-to-date than the published figures. And where it's unclear, we've checked with the councils themselves. OK, fantastic. So we, where there's a published position, we've listed that. Where there's something that's updated the published position, such as the housing delivery test or an appeal decision, we've published that as well. Yes. Fantastic. Sam, can you tell us why it's important for a council to have a five-year housing land supply and how many councils have them? 
So the National Planning Policy Framework, which was first published in 2012, requires each authority to routinely monitor its pipeline of housing land with the aim of maintaining at least a five-year supply of deliverable sites. When councils are unable to demonstrate such a pipeline, the MPPF's presumption in favour of sustainable development applies, which renders the housing policies in their local plan out of date, making them more vulnerable to speculative applications. Our research shows that currently 115 English local planning authorities, or 37%, are lacking a five-year housing land supply. Okay, so that's more than a third of authorities who are vulnerable to speculative, unplanned housing schemes. Yes. Okay, and is there any significant regional variation in the extent to which councils have a five-year housing land supply? There is. The lack of housing land supply is most acute in the south of England, with authorities in the southeast and southwest regions the least likely to be able to demonstrate a five-year pipeline. In the southeast, where the average figure is just 4.72 years, only 45% of authorities have a figure of five years or more. In the southwest, this figure is 47%. Authorities in the Midlands regions are the most likely to be able to demonstrate a five-year supply. Our research shows that 80% of East Midlands authorities and 77% of West Midlands authorities are able to demonstrate a housing land supply of five years or more. Okay, really interesting. Thanks, Sam. Chris, you've looked at one particular group of councils, those with the most marginal supply. What strategies are these councils adopting to ensure that their supply doesn't slip under the five-year mark? Well, there doesn't appear to be any sort of set strategy. Some councils say they've demonstrated that they have a five-year housing supply, so they don't need to take drastic action. St. Helens Borough Council, uh, they told us uh, that throughout the period, it's continued to meet its housing delivery test requirements and has not been subject to any uh, penalties, and it will carry on as is as it finalises its local plan. Others are looking at recent changes to nutrient neutrality as a possible escape clause. As we've already heard, Havent, uh, which isn't one of the, the marginal local authorities, has written to Gove saying that uh, it will eliminate previous under-delivery from its five-year housing calculation in the wake of new nutrient neutrality advice. And three of the local authorities within this 10 most marginal group come into that sort of same category. We also have several councils uh, with marginal positions because of previous under-delivery, and they've been hit with 20% buffers. So Broxbourne, for example, said that without that uplift, uh, they have an 8.85-year housing land supply. And then other councils, uh, for example, Carlisle, they're looking at these big ticket projects to get them uh, across the line. So Carlisle have this uh, St. Cuthbert's Garden Village as part of its new local plan. And at over 10,000 homes, it's going to be the largest garden settlement program in the north of England. and uh, will provide a pipeline of sites for the next 30 years, it says. But this should be cautioned. Uh, I spoke to Gareth Jones, who's the Associate Director at Consultancy ProVision, He told us uh, that there's a continuing trend from local planning authorities to rely greatly on large-scale strategic developments to meet their overall housing needs. And this is actually hurting local authorities the most because it's these large sites that take time to be delivered and many authorities are sort of overly optimistic on their delivery. This reliance on large-scale strategic development is sometimes at the expense of supporting small and medium sites which are distributed across more settlements. Are there others that are also relying on... um on sort of big schemes delivering a, um, a big new pipeline of, uh, of housing sites? Well, Lewisham Council actually echoed what Gareth John said, and they've said that it was a number of large sites that were delayed due to the effects of the pandemic, Brexit uncertainties, which forced it to uh, fall into this marginal land supply. Okay, oh, that's interesting. And a number of these councils are saying, 
they've been pushed into this position by not performing well in the uh, housing delivery test. Three of them say that. Of course, I'm sure that's true, but I guess that doesn't improve their housing land supply position. So they're going to have to, unless they're prepared to sort of walk a bit of a tightrope over the coming year, they're going to need to do something to improve their positions. Yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, thank you all very much for that. Now to find Room 106's Curio Corner, where John normally finds his quirky story of the week. Ah, here we are. That didn't take long. So, John, which is the story that's caught the eye of our readers without necessarily being a portentous planning issue? Hello, Richard. My quirky story this week is the latest in the long-running saga of the house in Oxford that has a big shark sculpture diving into its roof. So... Back in the 80s, it was initially the subject of unsuccessful enforcement action by local planning officers who tried to remove it, but it subsequently became a local landmark. The latest twist is that the fibreglass sculpture has suddenly been removed by the homeowner in protest against what he called the City Council's hypocritical decision to add it to Oxford's Heritage Asset Register. So the homeowner said it had become clear that people had missed a large part of the message of the Shark House. And this guy is the son of the original homeowner who installed the shark sculpture. And his feeling is that what his dad did was to protest against restrictive planning laws that dictate what art people can and cannot appreciate. And he said the council's attempt to list the sculpture was um, flying in the face of that. And so the shark has disappeared? Yes. Gosh. Well, I wonder if that's the last we've heard of it. I'm sure it's not. Great. Well, I think our work is done. Let's get out before there are any more announcements or decisions. Fantastic. That's another fortnight summarised. Many thanks to Sam and Chris for doing the tour with us. Can't pretend it was easy. Never again. Anyway, we'll be back in two weeks to give you another update on the key things happening in the sector. Our thanks to producer Daisy Chaku from Rethink Audio... In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe wherever you normally get your podcasts. And to get a daily bulletin of planning news, plus weekly analysis, specialist bulletins, and our quarterly print magazine, subscribe at planningresource.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.